episode 65 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Danny Snelson and Johanna Drucker. Danny Snelson is an editor, writer, and archivist recently relocated to Los Angeles. He's an assistant professor at UCLA where he's developing a manuscript on what he calls the Little Database, a way to think about digital file formats and the transformation of art and writing on the internet. He's also working on a new project on editorial poetics, thinking about a long history of bibliography and editing as a way to think about contemporary creative writing practices. How can you create a digital archive that you could wander and drift through in the same way you might a dusty shelf, right? Like, how, how can you turn this clean, crisp, metadata-enabled space into something that, that feels like a place for discovery and a place for invention? Johanna Drucker is an artist and writer who lives in Los Angeles. She's known for her work in digital humanities, artist books, experimental typography, and modern art. She has two new books out right now, uh, Downdrift, an eco-fiction from Three Rooms Press, and The General Theory of Social Relativity, released by The Elephants, which is a publisher in Vancouver. But I've been thinking a lot recently about um, the politics of data formats, the ethics of data formats, and what it means to remediate into a particular data file format and what that means for accessibility, for readability, legibility, um, you know, disparity of resource and allocation um, of access. And at the end of the show, we're going to hear a new track from L.A. band Free Bleed. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. Danny Snelson and Johanna Drucker, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. So I think maybe a good place to start is uh, for us to talk about digital archives. Danny? Sure. That seems like a good place as any. Um, I think one of my first encounters with your work was through Artist Books Online, where I also was able to find every one of your like enormous archive of personal artist books that you've made. Um, maybe that could be a starting point? Sure. Um, I'm not sure what you'd like to talk about. I mean, to me, uh, making a digital archive had to do with trying to learn the um, structuring principles of XML, which is the basic, um, you know, uh, structured data format in which um, web publication is produced. And it was a great intellectual exercise. And I was at the University of Virginia in those years where digital humanities was really um, at the forefront um, at that point in the national arena. And, you know, we didn't really, as humanists, know what structured data was and why it was so important. And I think, I look at you and I think about, you know, just the sort of um, gap of maybe 10 years in terms of, of when you came into the kind of intellectual formation that you have, um, you know, and the way that thinking through structured forms probably had a very different impact on your intellectual kind of direction. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a, a really um, insightful point. I think I came into places where the data had been structured and then was able to think from these structured databases, what can we do with them, um, which has led me directly into thinking about formats in relationship to structured data. So the kinds of formats that, that run an archive, like the JPEG or the PDF uh, or the text file, 
each of which has a really different and and uh, important role in the way that it presents these historical objects. For both of us, I think the the object par excellence is the book and and how the book gets transformed when it's you know when it gets tagged, uh, when it gets sorted, when the pages get rendered into these little images that maybe have text embedded or maybe not. Um, a, a lot of what I've been thinking about is precisely how to imagine those transformations and, and what that feels like, what that, you know, what that does to our understanding of history. Yeah, no, I mean, I think formats are really an interesting uh, place to, to consider um, the distinctions between um, the kind of format at the level of the structure of page display presentation, a kind of rhetoric of relations, right, which again for me was so incredibly important And thinking about the structure of writing within a book space, right? It's like, you know, how does that rhetorical um, organization actually function? Um, you know, how is it semantic, right? It's like, uh, are relations semantic in themselves? How do they structure reading and give value to terms in, in, in terms of positionality? Um, and, uh, but I think when we talk about format in the file format sense, there, you know, obviously there's a structuring principle there in terms of what the data actually, you know, contain, how they're written, um, what's lossy and lossless and so forth. But I've been thinking a lot recently about um, the politics of data formats, the ethics of data formats, and what it means to remediate into a particular data, um, you know, uh, again, a particular data file format and what that means for accessibility, for readability, legibility, um, you know, despair of resource and allocation um, of access. So I want, have, do you ever think about <laughs> it in those terms? Oh, definitely. Well, there's a, you know, there's a longstanding tension between access and preservation, mm -hmm. especially with data, with archival data oh, formats. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just to, to touch on, you know, um, it, especially I think in the early internet. So I, I sort of had to work my way backwards to these questions. Uh -huh. uh, I grew up in a tiny little town in Northern Utah where I had no access to anything. And I found it all through sites like UbuWeb or PenSound right. and sort of worked my way into the history from these databases that had already exist, mm -hmm. existed. So I was kind of parsing these. But the reason they existed is that they produced things in JPEGs and MP3 files, right. which as we know are terrible archival mm. standards. Right. Uh, right. PenSound, which is the largest collection of poetry recordings on the Internet, um, some 32,000 files, I think, last time I checked, uh, has notoriously been denied funding. And despite the fact that it has all these recordings, it, it won't get funded by the NEH as an archival project because of its choice of file format. Because mm. the MP3 is a very lossy mm. file format, it's not an archival mm. standard like a WAV file. Right. Um, and so uh, it, it's seen as a kind of like access point rather than an archive. And I think the tension between what counts as an archive and what doesn't with digital archives is actually something that's really interesting. I, I imagine that that's something you've thought about. Well, you know, the department I work in is information studies at UCLA, and we train archivists and media archivists, and mm -hmm. as well as people who work in libraries and uh, data curation and so forth. So the whole sort of professional side of this conversation has become something that I am, um, you know, immersed in um, since I came to that department 10 years ago. And it has a very, it, it's informed my thinking in ways that um, a more sort of amateur outsider um, understanding didn't. And uh, for instance, you know, no digital format is archival. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, that is just like, this is not true, right? Uh, nothing, nothing digital will last. And um, there's absolutely no evidence um, that any of these uh, formats are going to be stable or that they are. And, and of course, a data artifact is not a thing in itself, right? All data artifacts depend upon a stack. And the stack has all of these contingencies and dependencies. So mm-hmm. when you display or access a data file, um, in any kind of um, environment, um, it depends on the processing and the clock speeds and the you know um, storage mechanisms and the display and the screen and the screen rate and the networking and the networking environment. So when you think about it as a kind of momentary expression of a set of contingent codependencies, mm-hmm. which is how we think about it, um, yeah, it rolls right Very off the accurate. tongue. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and 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 then there's just the fact that you know every. Um, use of a data file, um, it degrades it, right? There, there's no such thing as a, cell, as a, as a file being the same. It, it changes. So in the archival world, there's this expression called locks. Lots of copies keeps things mm-hmm. safe. That's... And so the idea is, okay, make multiple, multiple copies. But the popular notion that, oh, if it's digitized, it's archival, it's just, it's it's fundamentally incorrect on all kinds of levels. Mm-hmm. And and this is where I love that the, uh, the tension between access and preservation gets turned on its head. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a lot of access, you have a popular way of making lots of copies, right? So the Internet Archive, for example, will only record web pages that a lot of people visited. Uh, Or uh, some of these files, which may, you know, if there's a single database that has a set of WAV files and they lose their their files, then they're gone forever. Right. Whereas if those MP3s are somehow seeded across Mm -hmm. thousands or tens of thousands of hard drives, there's more of a likelihood that they could pertain, they could sustain or, or continue into the present. So I think that there's something really interesting about, like, you know, by having poorly digitized materials, there's a sense that they may, that that the the poorer and the more easily accessible the file, the more likely it is to Mm -hmm. to preserve, which is really, Mm -hmm. I think, a a flipping of of the way we think about conservation or preservation when Mm -hmm. it comes to material artifacts like books. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting point. I mean, two things come to mind. Um, One is I have a kind of... um, you know, manifesto of poor media. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you should always work at the lowest end of media that you possibly can. Um, and so when we did Artist Books Online, we being me, I, plural, um, I, you <laughs> know, we worked di- I worked directly in XML and HTML. Um, and I do that now with the History of the Book Online project and with the um, uh, personal memoir uh project I'm working on. Because again, you're, you reduce the obsolescence factor. Um, mm. The less dependent you are in any kind of platform or any kind of proprietary or non-proprietary um, environment, the, the longer your files and your con- intellectual content is likely to last. So the principle is never wed your intellectual content to a platform. Right, always make sure that your content is platform independent. So, but there's another um, thing that comes to mind as well, which is the whole blockchain distributed computing, mm. um, where content, um, you know, lives as an independent entity and is passed in a peer-to-peer file sharing mode, so that it's no longer a matter of storage and point, you know, individual access, but it the the content gets distributed so that it can replicate. And this was a traffic problem that was uh, among other 
other things, security problem, but also a traffic problem that the um, technology is designed to um, to solve, so that you don't have a kind of bottleneck of access on you know high demand resources, but things get you know shared and passed on. So I think that you know this raises all kinds of interesting questions about archiving because mm-hmm. you're archiving a continually mutating and unstable um, object. So. I'll stop in a second, but when um, uh, when I'm teaching a class right now on materiality of texts, uh, we start with traditional bibliography and critical editing and talk about the fluidity of the traditional text um, as its versions and, you know, sort of how do you establish the authority of a text in all of its, you know, um, iterations and so forth. And then we move into these digital environments where, again, iteration becomes like every instantiation Mm -hmm. is an iteration. So it's really interesting uh, to consider then what do we consider to be a text? Um, And you play with that in your work. (laughs) Like that's sort of your start point for, you know, creative, innovative um, play, Mm -hmm. isn't it? I'm I'm nodding vigorously over here. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, and I I would love the idea of a creative archive built in blockchain, (laughs) which would be great. Right, but you know, I think that these that the networks that we're plugged into force us to think creatively about how to archive and how we want to transmit our cultural history, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's not an obvious option. This is one thing I found so inspiring from your work is thinking about design and, Mm -hmm. and thinking about aesthetics and poetics when we're archiving. That there's not a kind of one to one transfer. That when you digitize. That there's a there are manifold choices that go into each one yeah. of those operations, and I think each of those choices is kind of a creative activity. Absolutely. Right? And so you know, a lot of my creative work comes out of doing this kind of archiving, where uh, thinking about you know what it might mean to turn a file from a PDF to a plain text file, and mm-hmm. and what kinds of noise gets introduced into right. that system, and and what right. kind of losses and gains there are. I think that there's a tremendous uh, poetic potential um, mm-hmm. to that that also enables us to see what the formats are doing, mm-hmm. to see how these networks are operating. And, and uh, that's one of the things that poetics has always been able to do, right, is to be able to establish some kind of connection between mm-hmm. formal elements like prosody and mm-hmm. semantic elements like content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, and there, again, it's you know I totally agree, and I see you know it's a continuity with the analog world. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is a kind of theory of the facsimile, mm-hmm. and you know you start to look at um, you know the there's a really famous work by a man named Jean Mabillon, um, 17th century, um, and he uh, was trying to take a look at church documents in the terms on which um, authority of uh, deeds and property. Um, you know, sort of uh, gifts could be established. He goes and literally copies the form of these documents, mm. the charter hands and the elaborate seals, the, the charter hands and the elaborate format structures, every feature of these material documents, he copies onto engraving plates and then prints and you think okay so what is the eye hand coordination to start with (laughs) but then you watch this move forward into the 19th century chromolithography takes off and people are copying medieval manuscripts by redrawing them redrawing the foxing the damage (laughs) that like you know broken edge of Mm. something um so that the replica is the replica not just of the thing in some pure state but of its history of wear and 
use it. It's it's like what what is the information in the artifact, right? So and you think about that digitally as well. And that but that that retracing project seems like like such a contemporary like I can imagine a gallery in downtown LA <laughs> where some artist has gone back and found 17th century engravings and traced them bit by bit like there's something yeah. very contemporary about that practice mm-hmm. and and this is one of the things that really excites me about looking back to yeah. the history of bibliography and editing because I think it has a lot to tell us about our you, you used the phrase fluid text earlier right yeah. think, to think about our fluid environment and our networks where we have this robust vocabulary, we have these amazing anecdotes like the one you just shared that I think have a lot to tell us about what to think about social media or, or how to imagine the iterativity of files that are now sort of flipped where every copy of a file is like an original instantiation of that mm-hmm. file. And, and that notion has a way of pointing us back to thinking about the history of the book. But the history of the book maybe has a lot of ways of telling us how these files work, <laughs> if that so, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to go back to a point you made earlier um, about the creative act, mm. okay, of choosing format, and um, think a little bit about, um, you know, the, um, you know, creative act is an act of interpretation as well, and the interpretive act is an act of creation, and you know, is there a marked difference in the way we think about that in an analog environment and a digital environment? And, you know, there's a way that the um, remediation acts that we, um, you know, sort of initiate in a digital sequence of remediation activities. Um, Is that different, you know, than what happens in a print environment when we move from our manuscript or typescript into print? Um, We know that these are interpretive acts. We know that every remediation introduces a different inflection and is interpretive. But... Um, is it different when we're working in the digital formats? I think it's different in every single instance. <laughs> and I think that the, yeah. I think there's a lot that's in common. I, one, I think that we're working with more collaborators maybe in the digital format. That, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite examples uh, of, of this kind of instance is a, a flash video file of the Paul Sherritt's film called Dots. Uh-huh. It's this 1960s um, uh, flicker film that he made where it's just flickering dots. Um, there are actually warnings to for people going to see this in the theaters, that it could induce seizures. It was such a dramatic, cinematic object. Flash video is really, really bad at fast transitions. It, it's more, <laughs> you know, it, it works on on uh, 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 continuous movement of pixels from frame to frame, rather, and it's really bad at jump cuts. So when you watch dots on the internet, <laughs> the dots have literally been turned into squares. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Right. So I love like it. the like the entire film has been transformed, right? Yeah, yeah. Simply by uploading it to Flash Video. And and what that does is it shows you what Flash yeah, is, yeah. right? It shows you what Flash does yeah. and how it works. I think that's kind of been the case, you know, yeah. when, when you move from say like manuscript to print to these kinds yeah. of lithographic procedures that each one of them reflects back on the the forms and formats that preceded them, but but also takes those into the present and, and yeah. has a kind of collaborator. With digital networks, it becomes really, really complicated because in addition to the flash video, there's the website that it's embedded in, there's the metadata that's attached to it, there's the way that that film circulates among various communities or copyright holders. Um, And so it's a compounding, I think it's an additive kind of change. But I think that those decisions, those discrete decisions that we make when we move cultural content from one place to another have a lot in common. 
Yeah. But uh, uh, you're looking at me, maybe that them. answer is unsatisfying. I'd, no, I'd like no. to hear your thoughts. It, no, it's great. I mean, we, we could keep going on this, and, and, and I think there's lots more to say, but I kind of want to take the conversation a slightly different mm. direction. Before I do, I'll just get a little tiny anecdote, which is when we were first using computer typesetting um, in the mid-'70s at the West Coast Print Center, and people would come in with typescripts, and they had carefully aligned all of the – you know, word beginnings and breaks, and it's like this was a spatially specific score. You know, mm. the, the poem was shaped. And we would have to sit there and explain we could not replicate this because variable spacing in the computer could never match standard spacing on a typewriter. Mm. And they were furious about it. It's like, my poem, you know, it's whatever. Okay, so um, <laughs> they were not interested in the, um, you know, interpretive dimension of remediation, and they weren't open to it. Mm. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on the iTunes uh, podcast store. Search for The People Radio. Uh, and if you're there and you want to... Hey, you could rate the show, review it. Uh, you know, you could subscribe to the show. That'd be yeah, great, too. Yeah, all those things really help us out. And if if you're listening to the show right now, thank you very much. And if you're a longtime listener or just it's your first time listening to the show, thanks for checking us out. And please do uh, tell a friend. Yeah, tell a friend. It really yeah. helps us. Um, and now we'll get back to our conversation with Danny Snelson and Johanna Drucker. So, Danny, I was um, wanting to kind of take this conversation in a slightly different direction and think a little bit about um, how thinking about archives actually shapes uh, your creative practice, my creative practice. And there's a bunch of things there. One is the structuring, you know, Mm. issue. Um, And the other is really this kind of like, you know, anticipating history, anticipating one's own place in history, anticipating the production of history and so forth. So wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, that's such a generous question. Thank you. Um, I think almost every creative project I've done recent, in recent past has been in some way coming out of or responding to an archive. Um, and it, these all happen in different ways. So uh, I did a project called Executable Text, um, which was uh, a chance to try and uh, use this archive called text.com, T-E-X-T-Z.com. It was like a, a pirated text collection around the turn of the millennium. Uh, had like cyberpunk and situationists and this very sexy digital media archive. Um, and I had been writing about it endlessly for, for my dissertation. Academically, I was trying to parse this archive, trying to understand what it does and how it works. And at the end of this process, I realized that what I could have done is just let the archive speak for itself. And so I wrote a little Python script that found every instance of the word text and every instance of the word software and extracted them from this this database and then recompiled them as a book. And and actually, I think that book maybe made my argument better than I could as a human. So this was an effort to try to make an archive speak for itself or, or be able to try and find what the character of an archive it is and, and tap into reading it creatively as a kind of human that's plugged into it. Um, so that's not thinking so much uh, historically, but, but thinking about how to allow these archives to speak or, or how to find and navigate them uh, from a kind of from a human perspective. So 
Um, a couple thoughts um, come to mind immediately. Again, I work in a context where professional arch- archivists are trained and where debates about archives are part of the you know, curriculum and as well as you know, m- many other kind of conversations. So in that context, the term archive, you know, everybody wants to police their own language. Mm-hmm. Um, archive is used uh, explicitly um, to refer to a uh, collection of documents um, within an institutional context, uh, usually government, bureaucratic, and so forth, gets applied to um, individuals and, uh, you know, the works of, of creative people if it is, again, a kind of, you know, uh, record of documents, a collection of documents. and um, But in general, a lot of things that are put online, you know, so the Walt Whitman Archive or the, you know, uh, Blake Archive, those are not considered archives by mm-hmm. archivists. Those mm-hmm. are considered collections. I don't really care. Like, I could care less about policing the language. But um, I think what's interesting to think about in terms of the intervention that you made in that instance is that, you know, that kind of uh, digital analytic um, mm. approach, which is, um, you know, a form of distant reading, a kind of form of processing, so that you can expose some aspect of this corpus. Mm. Um, it's really interesting, because we couldn't, it's really hard to do analog, and mm-hmm. it's something you can in- enable digitally. But if we take it to one level above that kind of processing through the text files, and think about what is the structure of the archive, kind of to go back to what mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier, Um, I'm wondering if the kind of challenge of thinking about archival organization is something that's engaged your imagination as well. It's sneakingly suspected probably has. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And to to return to the question of uh, the archive and and the policing of that particular word, um, most of what I've been looking at are these amateur collections (laughs) on the Internet um, that really don't classify, and this is part of why I've developed this phrase, little database, to just invent my own term, right? When there's a problematic term, you just make one up. Um, it's a little database extending in one sense to the little magazine or a kind of fugitive collection that's independently made and non pointedly non-institutional, um, but also little in, in response to big data, big structuring systems of data. So trying to think about what are little interventions that a person can make. Uh, a lot of my creative practice has tried to think in the same way about uh, diction, something like diction, or like the isolating the smallest aspects of what a human can do with choice. I mean, this is a kind of structuring system, right? So mm-hmm. um, uh, giving the writing a kind of very structured space of rules that then you can enter and make like discrete little choices. Uh, I did this in a book called Radios, which um, recomposes Paradise Lost using just the fragments that Ronald Johnson left behind in his famous <laughs> book, Radios. Right. So I have just these like very few words and, and like I don't have the word uh, fruits in the famous first line of Paradise Lost, but the word flutes was left behind, which, uh-huh. you know, which a, a machine wouldn't have seen. Like I don't think an algorithm would have said, oh, flutes instead of fruits here and then something more semantic here and, and something more um, uh, that, that has a, a kind of antonymic relationship in another place. But those are things that humans can still do. So I'm mm-hmm. really interested in, in trying to explore as a, as a creative artist in response to this kind of structured data, what it is that humans can still do. Right. Right. So first of all, I want to say I love that idea of the little database as a kind of corollary to the little magazine. 
or the small press. You know, it's like it, it's it, it, the use of the term just designates a kind of cultural location mm. and and you know, kind of scale of ambition, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, but I want to um, go back to uh, the idea of the left behind, the remnants, mm. and then think about this kind of prospective view, right? It's like, you know, to what extent as writers, right? Like, forget all this academic stuff, okay? Please. To what extent <laughs> as writers do we think about, you know, what we're making as what will be left behind, right? Um, as evidence of our creative practice, of evidence of our form making, our poetics, our participation. You know, it's like, do we think about the work as a relic, you know, as that which stands, you know, and is then able to be picked up in some retro antiquarian sense? Or do we think about it as part of a living tissue of other things? I mean, you know, first of all, we can't control our, our intellectual lives while we're alive. Wait until mm -hmm. you're dead, you know, it's going to be a real problem. So, but um, but still, the idea of, of that which is left behind, um, to what extent does that kind of, you know, in some way kind of permeate your own creative imagination when you're working? Um, you know, do you, do you see the retrospective future in terms of, you know, how what you're doing now becomes a, a relic later? Yeah, that's such a beautiful <laughs> question. I, I want to like just flip it right back at you because I'm so curious. And I'm when I get to the end of it, I really want to flip that back at you. But um, I think working with archives so much, you, you sort of have that mentality all the time, right? When I'm looking at historical materials, I'm always thinking, well, where will my piece fit in, right? Uh -huh. Like, where is that going to go? And And that, I think, opens up a lot of creative gameplay where I'm thinking less about you know, the prestige of my work after I have long passed, um, but rather how the works I make can sit in archives themselves. So uh -huh. making performances for the MP3 file that will go into Pensound, mm -hmm. right? So often, like, you know, rather than giving a poetry reading, I'll be giving a poetry reading that I know is being recording, like this artificial setting we have here, the podcast, right? Um, if I were more creative, I would try to think, well, what, what, in what ways poetically can I speak to the scenario and and speak to its archiving online or its posting online? Um, so that pervades a lot of my work, um, mm -hmm. trying to respond to that and and think about. Um, well, I'm just going to cut that track off. Um, because I really just want to ask you what you're thinking currently about that. I mean, you've been thinking on these really grand uh, temporal scales in, in your recent creative practices, like, uh, you know, um, not to jump any guns, but like, what would an archaeon make of your work after right. you passed, right? Uh, what are we leaving behind for the artificial intelligences? Yeah. Uh, what are we leaving behind for these algorithms and, and these systems who will be parsing us in ways we can't imagine? Uh, is something I'm, I'm really interested in thinking of speculatively. So... Just yeah, to return yeah. your question, what, how do you think about Gosh, that? Gosh, I have like seven answers and mm. uh, responses to you. But uh -huh. um, just so people understand the reference, the Archean is a 3.8 billion year old um, unicellular uh, organism that it's real. It, it exists. Um, it's a category of life form. Um, they were only discovered uh, in the 1970s. Um, and it is um, the narrator of a recent book of mine, The uh, Downdrift Ecofiction. So yeah, the time scale of 3.8 billion years um, is the point of view from which the story is told. Um, and partly um, as a kind of comment on human exceptionalism and to, to think about the larger scales of time and processes in which we're involved. But um, I want to go um, sort of also, so there's lots of things I could say about, you know, my own relationship to archiving and my own work. I mean, I still have the poems I wrote when I was 10 years old on the day that JFK died, 
All right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever that impulse was about, you know, I'm not a collector, but I have all the manuscripts that I've never published. And this is my memoir project, you know, all mm-hmm. the books I never wrote or wrote and never published. And um, so I'm really interested, again, in, in the recovery process of going back, I, I, not so much to talk about my life, um, which isn't particularly interesting, well, except in all the tales I'm not going to tell. But, um, but, I don't believe uh, you. <laughs> but, but what's interesting to me is what did I think writing was? Like, wh- why was I writing? Why at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 was writing so important, right, that I would fill notebooks, you know, 400-page novel? I'm 12 years old. I mean, what am I thinking? And so when I think about your talking about putting something into an archival context, it kind of takes me in the, in the direction of the kind of codependent, nonlinear, stochastic analysis of culture that, mm. you know, is another really big part of my thinking over the last, you know, years. Um, and it's like, how is the formation, the configuration of an individual articulation understood in relationship to these, you know, systems, these living systems. I don't mean like sentient, animate, woo-woo, Southern California thinking, (laughs) but just living in the sense that they're dynamic, nonlinear, emergent systems, and that any articulation of a poem, a text, a performance, a song is a, you know, sort of momentary, you know, sort of instance within this large um, environment of codependencies. And we don't read poetry that way, right? It's Mm. like the great opportunity we're missing in something like the Whitman Archive, right, is to read his work in relationship to the linguistic soup of w- in which it's it's emerging, right? It's like how much newspaper language is in his poetry? How much, you know, novel? How much Shakespeare? How much, you know, sort of um, accounts from, you know, receipts and business dealings? It's like where in the linguistic systems that he is, a, you know, an, an, an enunciator inside of, where does his configuration set? We haven't done that. You know, it's the missed, it's the it's the missed opportunity. I think for digital analysis is to not see the boundaries of the work, but to see the work within the larger linguistic systems and cultural systems. That's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of this really beautiful. And uh, Joanna, Joanna gave this. Uh, Joanna gave this amazing reading last night at Beyond Baroque, and, and you're talking about uh, not thinking differentially. I think we're so accustomed to thinking in terms of differentials, like this poet is not that poet, this poem is not that, it's defined in difference to the world around it. Uh, and instead, you're proposing we think topographically, right? So thinking about situatedness and specific points, and that when you think topographically, there's an entire environment and full systems that, that engage with that work. Um, I find that so inspiring. <laughs> I was thinking, I, I wanted to also return to um, your memoirs that you're thinking about, uh, because I have an overlapping project that, that um, I've been working on called Apocalypse Diary. Uh-huh. Um, in, in this project, I've been writing uh, a kind of memoir um, uh, within every prophecy I can find of the end of the world uh, as, as the, that takes each one of those prophecies completely seriously, uh-huh. fictive or otherwise. Uh-huh. So the world has been bombarded by comments many times. Jesus comes back thousands of times. Um, uh, there's uh, the right when I was born in 1984, the world had collapsed because of population, the population bomb. There were just too many humans for the earth to sustain itself. And I've been trying to think about wrapping little memories that I have into this narrative. And, and in, in, 
in some sense, I think it's a response to the catastrophic or the, the, right. the fact that like, you know, we're talking about leaving our things behind, but like we're leaving something behind that may be completely eradicated right. or likely eradicated right. within a hundred years. Um, I mean, I think that even every time I try to teach, you know, Plato, and I think, you know, it's like, you know, that's, you know, will there even be a 500 years from now, let alone a 25, you know, 100 years from now? And uh, it's a very sobering thought. And um, uh, so, you know, I definitely, you know, I, you know, I call myself Pollyanna of the apocalypse. It's like <laughs> I get up every day and I'm really grateful, you know, because I live in Southern California and there's the sun and the air and, you know, I get to take a run and I have my wonderful cats and my coffee. And then it's like, yeah, and the world is ending, you know, sort of like, <laughs> so it's like my daily, you know, sort of condition. Um, and um, so I, I wanted to just um, go back to the, the point about um, non-differential specificity. Mm. Um, just to like introduce casual vernacular term here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm into it. <laughs> but um, for a while, again, I've been really interested in trying to think identity outside of alterity. Mm-hmm. And I think in our current cultural climate, the binarisms that have so polarized um, the cultural environment are based on a paradigm of otherness. And I think that that paradigm of otherness is not serving us because if you think about specificity as location within a larger field of social relations, it isn't about, you know, self and other, you know, sort of um, white and black, human and, you know, culture and nature. But again, it's much more about these continua and the way that specificity is within this holistic, um, you know, sort of environment. And, uh, you know, my my prescription for the future is um, um, holistic socialism. Right, radical holistic <laughs> socialism. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but um, we do need to think differently about how we're conceptualizing. Um, you know, I think many aspects of cultural relations. If we're going to think ourselves um, uh, beyond extinction <laughs> or the threat of extinction. You're listening to the People on K Chung, sixteen thirty AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. You can find us on SoundCloud and everywhere you get your podcasts, of course. Also, if you like the show, tell a friend about it. Do tell a friend. That'd be great. And now back to our conversation with Danny Snelson and Johanna Drucker. So, uh, Johanna, I think most recently we've been we've had an opportunity to start working together archivally and I want to continue this conversation around archives and around structured data and the practices the creative practices that we're pursuing uh to maybe start talking to you a little bit about this project we've that that you've initiated at at beyond is that correct I'm not sure how yeah I I initiated the project at beyond baroque um a friend of mine is on the board and um I know folks there but uh beyond baroque is the oldest existing literary institution in LA um it was founded in 1968 by George Drury Smith and it's been in operation um ever since and uh they have an archive and uh or they have a they had a lot of, you know, stuff in closets, and uh, which is, you know, literally what an archive often is. <laughs> and um, they wanted it to be, um, you know, organized in order to be appraised so they could think about placing it someplace. And so I volunteered to do this with a bunch of my students who, are, again, archival study students and interested in the project. So we went down there, and uh, my friend Karen Kevorkin, who's a poet on the board, uh, we cleaned out the closets <laughs> and figured out what was there and have been working 
um, you know, to put it into an inventoried form. And so we're just using Excel spreadsheets and doing a line item, you know, uh, item by item description. Um, and, you know, to, to, to look at the inventory of materials, the institutional repository. And so what's interesting about this, I think what, where you and I connected over this, is it's one thing to have theoretical notions about archives and archival practice. Another thing to go in and start working with the materials mm-hmm. and then think about, well, let's think about some imaginative ways to work with the materials. And um, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the kind of creative uh, conversation that we had about ways to think about the, um, you know, uh, structuring of the metadata and the data environment to do some of the things that might resonate with our larger ideas. Yeah, and resonate with that space. I mean, the Beyond Broke space is so incredible. And and at the start of the project, I saw images. It's just mountains and mountains of, of box and papers and disorganized ephemera that have been gathering since the 60s. And so when you're sorting through all these things, you're you know putting into more or less a standardized format, the spreadsheet, everything from the announcement of a like rock and roll concert uh, as a fundraising event, next to some of the like you know most extraordinary rare bits of like poetic history and chapbooks and, and rare documents that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. And so when we're sitting through and going piece by piece by this, feeling each document as it goes past, there's a kind of um, there's so much specificity to the place. There's so much specificity to each of those objects. And so trying to imagine what would be an archival format on the internet that would be able to present that space and present these these works. And so we've been having conversations like even down to the lines of should it be an Omeka, which is more of an academic platform, or WordPress, which maybe have some more design flexibility. Um, are we presenting full documents? Are we just presenting the, the covers? Are these images that people want to see? Or are they literary objects that people want to read? And so all of these small decisions uh, code the kinds of use that an, that an online archive enables. Um, yeah. Is it something that you can drift through? I think this is one of the more inventive right. ideas. Like, how can you create a digital archive that you could wander and drift through in the same way you might a dusty shelf, right? Like, how, how can you turn this clean, crisp, metadata-enabled space into something that, that feels like a place for discovery and a place yeah. for invention? I think that that might be... Yeah, no, that was... I mean, and again, I appreciated so much so many of your comments. I mean, even the fact that we're using, um, you know, OCR PDF. Um, so, yeah, decisions about format. But I think the more interest the, at the higher level of kind of, you, you know, your imaginative contribution, and I think it was great for the students to hear this because they're trained in a fairly, um, you know, linear and, you know, it's like put the metadata, it's a kind of metadata to object, you know, description, surrogate record, you know, approach, is that you are really thinking about, well, what kind of community is this? How do we show a community? How do we show influence? How do we show events, you know? Where are the, you know, sort of nodes of of exchange? Where does excitement happen? And what generative features of a place like Beyond Baroque can be exposed in an archive rather than it being a kind of dead archive, Mm -hmm. right? An archive of dead objects. Um, so we could talk more about that, but I want to hear about what you're, what's on your mind at the moment. What kind of projects you have in mind? Because um, you you've got this glint in your eye, which people can't see on the radio. But um, so I know you're harboring some some you know really interesting thoughts. 
well, summer is coming. <laughs> we were just talking about, you know, homework and teaching and, and you know, the summer is, uh, I, I think people imagine playtime. that the summer is like a playtime where you're just down, like, you know, academics are just on the beach because they're off and they don't do anything. But it's like, oh, I can finally do the writing project I've been dreaming of. And, and uh -huh. like kind of generative work can emerge. Um, so I had an idea, like, <laughs> just like five days ago. Okay. That I'm really excited about. Right. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay. Okay. So I wanted to write a series of reviews about poetic works in the deep future uh, that deploy that moment's technology and, and human situation um, as a way to imagine what poetic texts might do to, to respond to those environments. So, for example, uh, a poem that would be imprinted on your retina that would turn even the most mundane signs and bureaucratic documents into richly prosodic verse that mm -hmm. is pleasing uh, to, to the reader. Or, say, a poetic device that responds to the biometric data and neural waves of its reader so that it crafts itself to establish exactly the right effective state or, or say, political leaning mm -hmm. or, or um, uh, uh, acquisition of knowledge, right? The, the perfect poem for every individual reader would be something different. Mm -hmm. um, all the way to something on a, on a grander scale like um, a civilization that uh, would... Uh, create artificial suns that would flicker out the narratives uh, of civilizations that had been wiped out. So mm -hmm. a series of memorial elegies oh, nice. that could be populated on, on a kind of billion-year uh -huh. scale. Um, so these would just be like short incidental reviews that I wanted to submit to magazines at first. <laughs> so I just want to write like, you know, like a standard 500 words about the retinal poem, uh, you know, a thousand words on these these planets that the people That's are making. That's um, And then ideally collect them together as a kind of speculative poetics that, that that of course like all sci-fi and speculative thought is a way to think about the present yeah yeah right and i think it's so difficult to think about the present and where we are that in some ways by extending the scale of time we're able to address what's happening i think this is something that happens yeah, yeah. In, in your work quite a bit yeah, so yeah. I, I wonder if uh, so i love this idea you know reviewing the future right mm -hmm. and um and i can also think about it as a way to get all kinds of sly revenge on persons whose whose oh, whose poetics deserve yes. <laughs> an interesting uh, transformation that was, that was a glint to my eye <laughs> <laughs> so um you know um but um so uh it, and so what comes to mind, um, this is a project that I'm probably not going to do, but it kind of falls in the same line. And that is, I, I was thinking about how blockchain could be um, made use of for mm. a generative, through a generative algorithm for an emergent poetic form. And so I thought it should be called iVirus, mm -hmm. so that, you know, the, the code would take advantage of its host organism um, to replicate itself, but, you know, with, um, you know, inventions and, and so forth as it went along. Um, so it's, you know, that it feels kind of retro almost because it's a sort of you know i robot uh -huh. you know i virus um you know so it, it has a kind of old-fashioned sci-fi feel to it yeah um and uh but kind of wedded to to new technologies which would be really fun so would it would, it would it propagate a poem or i mean we even earlier were thinking it could be a full archive that you could yeah it propagates you know, a text yeah. a network text um again i you know i like the idea of, of networked works and systems-based um you know, productions rather than autonomous texts, mm. right? It's like recognizing the, you know, the field, the idea of the field as the um, environment for uh, poetic production. Because I think the other interesting thing that your project um, brings into my mind is thinking about why poetics, mm -hmm. why poetry, 
right? Because it matters mm-hmm. to us. And mm-hmm. as I said last night when I was talking about the general theory, I said it's, it was important to me to, to use poetic language because poetic language grants permission for imaginative you know, envisioning right. and for, you know, a space of using language in ways that might, you know, still uh, take us by surprise. You know, I'm a, I'm an unreformed modernist, you know, it's, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, romantic and <laughs> modernist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Making strange and imagination as a powerful instrument for social change as well as intellectual engagement. So, you know, it's like, when you say poetry, I think poetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, you know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, why is that the form that works um, for you? That's, <laughs> why poetry? Uh-huh. Indeed, like, why ever? <laughs> yeah. Poetry. Yeah. I think that it has something to do with the human for me. Like, I, uh-huh. I think that, like, you know, in, in, as I've been imagining this, this project, uh, which I'm really going to do, um, a, a lot of it is about, like, isolating what makes humans humans right but but also the the poetry has had this unique potential to be able to show us i'm, I'm uh, yeah. unre- unrepentant modernist, <laughs> I think I would say. um it, it has a way to show us the world to, mm-hmm. to make that world strange and then to reflect back on like our place within it right um and it's one of those few things that humans can still do mm-hmm. that robots can't mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. so a lot of my creative practice has been trying to isolate well what are these what are, like you know yeah an algorithm can write a pretty convincing open verse Poem, right, right, right. And people won't know the difference. We've gotten pretty good at that. But like, there are certain things that robots still can't do, mm-hmm. like these elements of choice and, and decision making and, and imagination. And so I'm interested in trying to isolate what that is, because I think that's a, one way to get at what makes us these like these our strange little organic bodies, like what makes us work and what, mm-hmm. what, what isolates us from other kinds of production that, that right. computers and computational systems and networks can right. now produce. Right. No, I, I agree. And again, you know, it's like I'm not attached to human exceptionalism particularly, but I am interested in the specificity of the human, mm-hmm. right? And again, you know, um, I, the, the, the sort of side um, version of your, um, you know, speculative future reviews um, is what, what would be the equivalent of science fiction for criticism? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's like, what would really kind of speculative criticism look like? And, um, you know, because it seems to me like the opportunity of merging poetics and critical thought um, is really an important one for us to engage with, because criticism is so moribund within the academy. It's like so <laughs> yeah. rule-bound and so filled with, yeah. you know, jargon speak, and it's like you've got to, I, I won't name names, but you've got to absorb this one or that one, and you have your allegiances. So, um, you know, it's, it's just like what happens when we write criticism in a poetic voice mm-hmm. instead of in an academic voice? Yeah. And I think part of what you're playing around with is to sort of do that, right? Yeah, and I've, I've been so inspired by your work on, on, in all of these fields, right? Bringing in questions of design or making or building knowledge as a kind of scholarly activity, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, speculative or generative modes of producing scholarship mm-hmm. and, and really opening up what those, those forms can look like. Yeah, because I think one of the problems that we have is, you know, what is the role of poetics in contemporary culture? You know, can it do something that, you know, is really essential? 
And I think that all the time in the academy. It's like, you know, I love my academic life because it is a place where you own your own work. You get to think and work and work with young people. You're on the sort of edge of their thinking all the time. But, you know, it's sort of like the prescriptive nature of academic work, the conservative nature of it, um, I'm not sure is serving us. Mm. And so how do we break out of that? And, you know, how do we engage with forms of knowledge production that actually push against, like, really, truly skeptically, right? I'm not so interested in speculative thought as skeptical thought, mm. right? It's <laughs> like, how do I know what I know? And how do I imagine, you know, modes of knowledge production outside of those formula? And my, you know, sort of restlessness with academic life is that it tends to be so formulaic and prescriptive and guilt-driven and so forth. So where else in the culture, right? It's on in mm-hmm. the it's on in the product industries of entertainment. You know, sit on an airplane and look forward through the rows. <laughs> it's terrifying mm-hmm. to think, you know, what is what is being fed into that symbolic imaginary mainstream, mm-hmm. and it's it's really scary to watch the colonization of you know people's um, cerebral cortex by this, you know, uh, product. Right. And, and less scholarship or scholarly inquiry and skepticism can get into those headspaces, can infiltrate those meme, uh, meme stream is such a great phrase, like can infiltrate the meme stream. I think, you know, these these genres and formats, the, the academic essay, it, it produces a certain kind of human and it produces yeah. a certain yeah. kind of reading. And it's, yeah. a, it's a genre that, that really controls the way in which thought can traffic. And so I think opening up thought, opening up new right. potentials for ways in which someone can engage with something like knowledge, right? Like knowledge doesn't have to be embedded in a series of sentences and paragraphs right. and 15 right. pages. Right, <laughs> exactly, <footnotes>. exactly. <laughs> right, like knowledge yeah. could be Imaginative an yeah. and engaging and affectively rich. And, you know, I know we share an interest in sci-fi. Mm. And, you know, again, it's like, why? You know, what is it um, about the science fiction imagination mm-hmm. that sort of gives us this, you know, I mean, I like traditional novels and, you know, sort of the study of the interior life of human beings, you know, all that kind of stuff as well. <laughs> but um, but there's something about sci-fi um, in its capacity to give us convincing sort of, you know, fictions um, of alternative universes that really feels enriching. And I know that you um, share this secret vice. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I can honestly say that it pains me to end this show but we have to do it so johanna danny thank you so thank much thank you guys so much thank you for guys. joining yeah. us this was totally fun yeah <laughs> this is the great all right this was the great this was so great <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to the people on k chung 1630 am i'm matthew Tennant, and i'm ben white remember to get this and all past episodes for free on the itunes podcast store and if you really like the show uh, or you kind of like the show tell a friend about it it really helps us out yeah, tell a friend for sure. And we're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. You can find out more about Insert Blanc Press at insertblancpress.net. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller. And now we're going to go out with the title track from L.A. band Free Bleed, their recently released EP. It's entitled Last Woman Standing. And Free Bleed is Kat Dohan and Jen Hutton. You can find more of their music at freebleedband.bandcamp.com. And here's Last Woman Standing. We can do it! 
Touch me.